0: Listening to the Informal Bible Study, a casual and applicational look at the Scriptures. I'm John Stonge, and it's great to have you with us today. Before we take a look at our scripture today, I'd like to invite you to stop by our website, which is desirejesus.com. And on our website, you'll find links to our bookstore, links to both of our podcasts, our blog, and a link where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Each Tuesday, I send out a newsletter with a word of encouragement and some content to help you in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to receive that each week in your inbox, it's free. All you need to do is just sign up on the website, desirejesus.com. You'll see the newsletter tab. Just click it, and we'll be happy to add you to the email list. Now let's take a look at today's scripture. Today is the final day we're going to be looking at the series that we started some weeks ago, where we began looking at the I am statements of Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at the the final I am statement that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 18, looking at verses 1 through 9, where Jesus said, I am he. So if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, John chapter 18. Starting with verse 1, this is what it states. In John 18, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word, and thank You for giving us the privilege on this first Sunday of a new year to be able to take a look at these things and meditate on these truths and, by Your grace, grow from them. And so, Lord, we pray that You'd speak to our minds and speak to our hearts. Help us to learn more about You and more about how You choose to relate to us through this portion of Your Word. And we're grateful, Lord, for the time to be able to to just carve out some time to look at it and to put other things that so often uh, occupy our minds, to put those things aside so that we can concentrate on the truth of Your Word and to welcome the presence of Your Holy Spirit as He speaks these truths to our hearts. So we thank You for this time. We commit it to You, Lord. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I was attending a worship service that was actually hosted by a a group of churches. So there was a whole group of churches hosting together this worship service and, um, in addition to representatives from the respective churches, there, there was also an open invitation given to the community for people to come and to be part of this event. And some people from the community chose to come. And it was, it was certainly a nice time. The, the worship service included some of the normal aspects that you would expect. So we had a time of, of preaching. We had a time of singing. Uh, but there was also a time of drama where there was some acting. And then there was also, if I remember right, a time of personal testimony during that particular worship service and moments after the worship service concluded a woman walked up to me and asked me for my help and she said this she said you're a pastor right now i don't know what people are getting at sometimes when they ask that question because sometimes it could be good and sometimes it could be not so good so i wasn't sure what she was getting at but she said you're a pastor right and uh and i said yes i'm a pastor and she said okay good the woman who was sitting next to me during the service has some questions, and I thought it would be good if you spent a few moments and spoke to her. Uh, would you be willing to sit down and talk with her for a few minutes? And I said, yes, I'll do that. And so we both walked over, and we both together sat down with this woman that she said had some questions. And so I spoke to the woman for a while, and it became very clear in that moment that she desired to give her life over to Jesus Christ. She wanted to trust in Christ. She wanted to know Him. She wanted to receive the gift of salvation. She wanted to experience the joy of Christ's presence in her life. And so we had conversation, we talked, and we prayed together that evening, and she trusted in Jesus Christ. But early in my conversation with the woman, and I'll, I'll tell you why in just a moment I'm bringing this up today, uh, but early in my conversation with her, I asked her an important question that I think is important for all of us to To answer at some point in our life, but the question I asked her was this, to you, who is Jesus? Even before we got into some of the other details, I wanted to know at that point, did she have a clear understanding of who Jesus was? Because if she had a clear understanding of Jesus and who he is, then our conversation would take one track. But if she wasn't really clear about who Jesus was, then our conversation would probably start from a different point. And so I asked her who Jesus is, if she understood who he is, and, uh, and what he does for those who follow him. And I bring that up because when, when you look at the portion of scripture that we're looking at today, the final I am statement that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John, you have, you have Jesus in John chapter 18 giving his disciples and giving his adversaries in that moment a very clear glimpse of who he is. He's showing them who he is. When his adversaries said that they were seeking Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus replied, I am he. And the scripture tells us that upon hearing that declaration, they fell to the ground. So that must have been an interesting sight, and we'll look at that more in just a few moments. But what was Jesus demonstrating about his nature and his activity in the statement that he made there? And even in the things that were surrounding that statement. Well, I want to point out a few things here for, for uh, our benefit that I think will be useful in our walk with Christ. And one of the things that you could see just in the opening verses of the section that we just read is that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, meets with his disciples. Look again at verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 18. Let me reread those verses. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. And notice this statement. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Did you catch that when we read it the first time? It says, Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now, Scripture refers to those who are fully devoted followers of Christ as disciples. That's something, that's a term that's used regularly in scripture. And the process of making disciples is something that we refer to as discipleship. And it's something that all believers are called to participate in. We're encouraged to invite other believers to invest in our growth as Christ's disciples. And we're also called to personally invest ourselves in the discipleship of others. In fact, that's one of the main things that the Lord desires that you and I invest our lives in. Our discipleship as his followers, being faithful disciples, being fully devoted followers of Christ who help others become fully devoted followers of Christ. And sometimes, you know, I still remember the first time that concept was brought up to me. I wasn't highly familiar with the concept of discipleship in a personal way. I tended to think of disciples primarily as a title for Christ's initial followers in the Gospels. And then when people explained to me, no, this is something that's an ongoing practice, That believers are invited to participate in it's one of the main things that the Lord encourages us to do I started wondering all right well how does this happen how does discipleship happen what does it look like how does it how does it operate discipleship can happen in many ways at one point I defined it just one way I thought it happened just one way And then when you look at the Scriptures, you realize that discipleship happens in many ways. And when you look at the day-to-day lives that each of us have led, if people have invested in your walk in Jesus Christ, or your walk with Jesus Christ, if people have invested in you, they have probably done so in a variety of contexts and in a variety of ways. And I'm sure that that many, if not all of those things, were useful to you in in one way or another because discipleship can happen in many ways. Let me give a few examples. I believe a worship service is a form of discipleship. So gathering together to worship the Lord is something that the, the Lord uses to invest in our ongoing growth in Him. We're collectively as a large group gathering together and growing as disciples, making investments in one another, encouraging one another. I I thoroughly enjoy on Sunday mornings watching the conversations that take place person to person, and family to family, and, and just moments where you could tell people are making intentional investments. And as we gather together up here, what's happening downstairs? Well, there are teachers that volunteer from our congregation to invest in our children, and they're teaching children in a context where they're going to understand the truth of the gospel, and they grow. So so gathering together for a worship service, form of discipleship. Small groups are a form of discipleship. Sunday school classes, retreats, uh, long drives can be a form of discipleship. I think some of the best discipleship that our family has enjoyed together has occurred over long drives. We just had the privilege to take some really long drives together over the course of the past week. And in that context, if you're intentional about it, you can have useful conversations that point the hearts of each family member, ultimately, to Jesus Christ. I think lunches can be a great opportunity for discipleship. Discipleship involves meeting together. It involves carving out time. And it involves making an intentional investment in the spiritual growth of yourself or someone else. These are aspects of discipleship that I think Scripture makes abundantly clear. And again, one of the most powerful contexts that discipleship takes place in is the home. Discipleship in the home should never be uh, undervalued one of our our favorite things and i've mentioned this before but one of our favorite things to do as a family and this is so not complicated i think a lot of times people think that it, that there's a that discipleship is just complicated and you have to go to the store and buy some sort of discipleship program to be able to disciple your children or whatever and honestly one of my favorite things to do is before we sit down together in you know to watch tv together in an evening whether all of us are home or some of us are home we take the bible I have a Bible right next to my chair. I take that Bible, and I sometimes I have something that I want to read, and sometimes I'll just say to one of the kids, hey, um, pick a book of the Bible. Pick any book of the Bible. So the other night, one of my kids selected the book of Joshua. And I said, all right, great. We opened up to Joshua. I read a portion of Scripture from Joshua. We discussed it. We talked about it. Everybody shared insights and application about it. And then we prayed for one another. It didn't involve a program, we didn't have to have a subscription to anything, we just spent time together, opened up the Scriptures, read them out loud, talked about them for a few moments, made a few applicational suggestions to each other's lives, and then I invited one of our kids to close our time in prayer for one another. Discipleship in the home, don't underestimate its force, its power, its importance, Jesus was clearly invested in the discipleship of his followers. He wanted his disciples to grow. He wanted them to be strong. He wanted them to progress in their faith. And we're told in this passage that Jesus led his disciples to a garden that was across the brook Kidron. Now at the time... Uh, when this was taking place, it's likely that the water in that brook was maybe just at a trickle at that point. Uh, it's not the type of year or the time of year when that, that brook would tend to be rushing uh, more thoroughly. But he, he takes them across the brook Kidron. And it was a place he would frequently take them, and they were all familiar with it. This was the Garden of Gethsemane, by the way, where Jesus had come to pray and would soon be betrayed by, G, uh, by Judas, as we see as the scripture says progresses here. And I find it interesting that the Gospels don't record, unless I'm missing something here, it doesn't seem that the Gospels record Jesus telling Judas that he would be in that garden that evening. You know, unless I'm missing something, I haven't seen where Jesus tells Judas that they would be in the garden that evening. But Judas was still able to locate him. So why was he able to locate him if Jesus didn't directly say, hey, in a little bit we're going to be over in this garden. Well, I imagine it was likely the case because Jesus met with the disciples in that location regularly. You know, there's typically there's probably if you went missing, there's probably a place that people who know you would start the search for you. They would probably look for you starting somewhere. Some of you are probably like, "Well, yeah, Target or, you know, or or where?" You know, I often wonder where people I don't answer this, you know, where would people search for me? I I don't know. I don't know. You'd probably have certain food establishments or bookstores, right? That would probably be like uh, some of my favorite spots. But here you have Judas kind of figuring out very easily where to find Jesus. I imagine, again, this was likely the case because Jesus met in that location with the disciples regularly. This was a common spot that they would go to and get away from the crowds and spend time in prayer and spend time in discussion and spend time resting from all the different ministry that they were doing. This is taking place here. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is where they were at. And so Jesus would frequently carve out time and intentionally set aside that time to invest in the growth of his disciples in that very spot. This was a spot that they would typically Use It did not happen by accident. It was a purposeful act, and it was something they would regularly utilize. Now, would it surprise you to know that Jesus wants to meet regularly with you as well? That Christ wants to meet regularly with you and me as well? He wants time in our schedules. He delights to see us set aside a place or a day to meet him. I was recently in a restaurant, and I saw a group of uh, men who uh, were gathered there for Bible study, and I could overhear their conversation. They were studying the Scriptures and discussing the Scriptures together, and then I was in another restaurant a little time before that, and I was talking to the manager quickly, and he mentioned to me that there's a group that meets at 6 a.m. at that restaurant, again, for prayer and the study of Scriptures. I thought, oh, this is cool. Like in our community, there's all these different pockets of people meeting at local restaurants. When we go and visit my wife's parents, if we're there on certain days, I'll go with her father to a restaurant in the area where he meets with a group of guys once a week for prayer and the study of Scripture, and they try and invest in one another. The Lord delights to see that sort of thing taking place in our context. And discipleship's happening all around us with people who have decided to make developing a strong faith in Jesus Christ a primary focus of their life. Christ desires to meet with us. We see Him doing this during the course of His earthly ministry. He desires to do the same with us now. So the question, and I think this is a useful question for us at the start of a new year, because we have the opportunity to begin some new habits or invest in some patterns that have gone dormant. Where and when are we meeting with Jesus? Where and when are we meeting with Jesus Christ? And, you know, I guess this is a useful follow-up question we could ask, too. Are we allowing Christ's present-day disciples to make an investment in our discipleship? So are we allowing our brothers and sisters in Christ to invest in us? And then, likewise, are we taking that investment, and are we investing that in our household, our friends, Our brothers and sisters in Christ, are we being invested in? Are we investing what's been invested in us in somebody else? Are we carving out time to meet with Jesus Christ? At the opening of this portion of Scripture where Jesus is about to give his final I am statement in the Gospel of John, that's a pattern that you can see was well established with his disciples. They meet together. Jesus was meeting with them. Well, the Scripture goes on to show us something else. And I think it's interesting to look at this, but when you look at John chapter 18, verse 3, we see that Jesus cannot be defeated by the weapons of this world. Look at what it says in verse 3, and I want to show us how this has an application in your life and my life as well. But in John 18, verse 3, it says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons it's a very ominous statement in that verse isn't it they go there with lanterns and torches and weapons so at this point you know judas had been with jesus and disciple and the disciples just a few hours earlier uh, as they celebrated the passover together and after leaving that meal, it appears that he was rather busy because it tells us here that he managed to get a band of Roman soldiers along with officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And the picture that we're given here is that this is a large group of aggressive men that some num- that, that some people number in the hundreds. Some people estimate that this was probably a group of several hundred people. And they were joining Judas in search of Jesus that night, and we're also told that they were armed with lanterns and torches and weapons. They were not there to mess around. They came aggressively. They came prepared for a fight. I, I was recently watching some uh, a, a, a former Navy SEAL describe certain things about self-defense, and it was interesting how he talks about you know be prepared for this, prepared for this, and then you look at what these individuals have here, and what do they say? It says that they're prepared for a fight. They come ready for aggression. They're ready to be aggressive just by their number, but also with what they have with them. They've got torches. They've got weapons. And they're prepared to use these things. And they're brandishing these things. I, I get a kick out of, um, after I leave the, my office, uh, I come home. I'm, I'm usually home most nights, a little, just a little bit before dinner. And uh, first thing I do before I walk in the house is I check our mail. And I have four teenage children they uh, have sources of income, they have access to the internet, and they use that income sometimes to order all sorts of interesting things, and I never know what's going to come in the mail, I just see packages, and I'm like, all right, what is this? And nine times out of ten, when it's one of my sons ordering something, it's either uh, knives or something that makes fire, you know? And I, I'm like, all right, and I, I, I'll, I'll have them open it up, and they'll be like, dad, check it out, and I'll be like, How many knives do you need? Or how many ways to make fire do we really need? We own a click lighter. You know, it will make fire just as much as this mini hand torch or this other... I'm like, why Like, why do we... It's like, but it's sharp or flammable. This is what comes in the mail. I don't know if I should be concerned. I know their intentions have been good. It's a lot of fun when we go camping and they just bring out their gear and spread it out. And they're just like... If anything ever happens, if society shuts down, we're covered because my sons have it all figured out. Knives, fire-making implements, whatever, just shows up in our mail on a daily basis. But when you look at this, you know, their intentions are good. You know, we do a lot of camping-type things. But here, when you look at this particular context, uh, you have this group of men. They come to arrest Jesus, and they convince themselves that their intentions are pure. But their desire was to arrest Jesus. And their desire was motivated by sin. Their desire was motivated by jealousy. They come prepared for a fight. But the material weapons, think about this from the theological and spiritual perspective here. The material weapons they chose could not ultimately defeat the one who spoke the elements into existence that those weapons were fashioned out of. Scripture tells us that the universe was spoken into existence by Jesus Christ, that the elements were spoken into existence. So these very weapons that they're trying to use against Jesus are made out of the elements that he spoke into existence out of nothing. So they're trying to use worldly weapons against the one who created the world and who is choosing meekly to keep his glory veiled and his power under control so that he can intentionally suffer for the benefit of humanity now in a different way but with the same motives there are people in our generation right now still trying to defeat christ with the weapons of this world so it's in a different way but the motive is the same and trying to you know trying to use worldly weapons you know sometimes it could be through using mass media or it could be through using uh, you know, forms of entertainment, or it could be through using this political leader or that political leader, or, or, or all sorts of things that tend to kind of get the attention of a culture all at the same time. And you'll see people trying to use weapons of this world to try and defeat Christ or to try and defeat the those who follow Christ, the disciples of Christ. Well, just as it was a fruitless and foolish effort, In this case that we see here in John chapter 18, it's also a fruitless and foolish effort in our generation because, again, the one who spoke creation into existence is not going to be defeated by any small part of what he spoke into existence. It's not going to defeat him. It will not work. And by the way, this is how I want us to understand part of this as we look at this from an applicational standpoint too. If Christ lives within you, and He certainly does if you're His disciple, right? Scripture makes it abundantly clear that He lives within you. If He lives within you, He makes you a partaker of the victory that He's already secured over this world. You know, John's writing this gospel here. Elsewhere, he writes uh, some additional letters. And he's one who encourages us to be people who are not overcome by the world. But we're people who overcome the world with the power of Christ that that resides within us. Christ's victory is your victory. Christ's power becomes power that you have available as well. As we go through life, we're not left here. (coughs) Excuse me. Powerless. We're not left here without something uh, that we can utilize. We don't have to rely on our own strength. We don't have to look at the weapons of this world and consider these things as defining forces in your life or my life because ultimately the power of Christ will be and is victorious. The things of this world could not defeat Him. The things of this world cannot defeat Him within you. Something else that you can see in this portion of Scripture here, and this is kind of where the Scripture gets gets to this crescendo of what's taking place. But here we can see that Jesus invites us and he wants us to seek him with honorable motives because you see people seeking him here with dishonorable motives so we notice a contrast but look at what it tells us in John 18 starting with verse 4 it says then Jesus so this crew has come to him right it says then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him came forward so i picture there being a group of them you know Jesus with the disciples And they're saying, all right, which one's Jesus of Nazareth? We're here for Jesus of Nazareth. So it says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. So he steps forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he. Now picture this in your mind. It says they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, if some estimates are correct, we're talking about hundreds of people here. Jesus says, I am he, boom, dominoes, right? So he asks them again, whom do you seek? This is, you know, sort of like dusting themselves off and trying to regain their composure and picking up their weapons that probably fell out of their hands. Again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I wonder if the second time they said it, it was a little less confident than the first time. It was like, uh jesus of nazareth i hope we don't fall a second time right it's gonna be awkward i was listening to a podcast the other day while we were driving uh from pittsburgh across the state five-hour drive and i love listening to podcasts And i was listening to one on uh teddy roosevelt he's one of my favorite historical figures to study there's a new podcast my wife told me about that was just released came out teddy uh, tr versus history And I was like, oh, cool, this will be great to listen to, as if I haven't listened to a million things on Teddy Roosevelt through the years. But I was like, another thing. Learned a couple new things. But one of the things that I thought was real interesting, at one point they played a recording of his voice. And this is back in the early 1900s when that was a new technology. They played a recording of his voice, scratchy recording made somewhere in the early 1900s. And I have to tell you, for being such an imposing, personality and having such a strong personality, his voice doesn't match the personality. When you hear his voice, it sounds kind of squeaky in a way, you know? It just, and I don't think it was just the recording. It just, it even, I've read that historically that people were not overly impressed with the sound of his voice and it just didn't seem to match with his forceful personality. But hearing a recording of it, uh, you kind of listen to it and you think, yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound that imposing. But it was still interesting. And when I read John chapter 18, I can't help but wonder what Christ's voice sounded like in that moment, as He's responding, as He's speaking here. What tone did He use? What inflection did He use? Did He did He speak softly? You know, He speaks, You know, when He said, "I am He," did He say this? You know, you say it like, "I am He." Did He say it like that? Kind of a, you know, slow and soft. Or did he raise his voice and say, I am he? Or did he just say it normal volume, just matter-of-factly, I am he? How did he say it? What did it sound like? We don't know. It doesn't tell us anything about the inflection. It just tells us what he said. And I, you know, so we don't know what volume he used, but when, all I know is that when, when they said to him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he replies to them, I am he, this group of aggressors falls to the ground. Falls to the And by the way, the way this is translated, I am he, you could also just translate that to just say, I am. He is kind of, you know, put, it's kind of put there, um, to make a little bit more sense to us in, in the flow of English. But if you look at the original, you know the the way it's originally phrased, just "I am." So it's like we're looking for. So this is another way Jesus is directly just stating his divinity. Just "I am." You know, we're we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. "I am." So he's proclaiming deity to them, and they fall to the ground. This group of aggressors—they're there with their weapons. They're there. You know, you could just like feel the adrenaline taking place. They're ready for a fight. They're wondering what's going on. He's made such a stir in their community. They're ready to fight. And Jesus says, I am. And they fall to the ground. He didn't push them. He didn't trip them. I'm not even convinced that he raised his voice when he said it. He simply stated the truth that he is The I Am. He's God right there in the flesh. He declared His divine nature to them with power, and they fall down because they just can't help, but they can't stand in His presence unless He allows them to. And He says, I Am. This group was hunting for Jesus. Now they found Him. They were seeking Jesus, but they didn't come with honorable motives. They fall to the ground when He reveals to them who He is. Jesus wants us to seek him. He wants me to seek him. He wants you to seek him. He desires that we would seek him. But our motives in that search obviously reveal why we're seeking him. You know, we could be people in this world who are seeking him in a loose sense, mainly just in a vain attempt to try and harm him or harm his reputation or harm his people. There are certainly people that kind of mentally go on the hunt to try and pursue Jesus that way, like this group was in the physical context, or we can be people who seek Him because we can no longer deny His power. and We want Christ to be Lord of our lives. We want to be rescued by Him. We want to be the beneficiaries of why He came in the first place. So He desires that we seek Him with honorable motives, and He's happy to respond. He responds with delight to those who seek him in such a way. One other thing that this scripture tells us before we finish up, and that's this. Jesus will not lose those who are his own. And again, here we are. We're at the start of a new year. This is a comforting thought. This is a comforting statement that comes up multiple times in the Gospel of John. We see this in, in uh, and I'll, I'll share a portion of Scripture from the previous chapter in just a moment, but we also saw this earlier when Jesus was talking about the fact that He's the Good Shepherd. He doesn't lose those who are His own. This is something that should be firmly stuck in our minds because there are times that we feel like God would be perfectly justified in washing His hands of us and saying, you know, you create a lot of drama for me. You are way too much trouble. You tell me you're going to do one thing and then you go and do another thing. I wash my hands of you. If God did that, I think all of us could probably say, well, I had it coming. You know, It's not like I wasn't deserving of that. But yet that's what He tells us He doesn't do. And He tells it again here in this way when you look at verses 8 and 9 of John chapter 18. And this is where we'll finish today. But it says, Jesus answered, I told you that I am or as it says here i told you that i am he so if you seek me let these men go this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me i have lost not one Isn't that a beautiful thought beautiful truth of those whom you gave me i have lost not one um this week we were at a, a new year's eve party at at uh, some friend's house in pittsburgh and i was talking to my friend John, and he was telling me that not too long ago, his wife lost the diamond from her engagement ring. And, uh, she was obviously sad about this. They've been married, you know, 20 some years, and, and uh, he, and she couldn't find it. And it was on a day, it was before the weather had turned, and she had been doing some gardening and, and had been doing a few other things around the house, and I think was even doing something in the kitchen that made them fearful that the, the diamond may have actually fallen down the sink. And so, you know, they thought it was probably a vain search, but they decided let's just look around the house, see if we could see anything. They've got multiple kids. They've got a dog. You know, they're, th- they're thinking, it's not we're not going to find this. It's maybe buried in the garden or down the drain, uh, but let's look. And John told me that when he was walking through one particular area, he came into their dining room area, I think he said it was, and he looked down, and it didn't look like the diamond because it was upside down from how, how it normally sits in the setting. But he saw something standing out on their carpet. And so he went and he reached for it and he picked it up and it was the diamond. And he found it. And they, you know, they went to a jeweler, had the the, the ring repaired and the diamond uh, put back in. But the relief that they, and like, a, what's a, a diamond, right? It's just a thing. It's just, you know, I grew up in the coal region here, Pennsylvania. It's just compressed coal, all right? We all think it's so fancy and wonderful. It's just coal that got squished over a period of time, right? Um, you know, sometimes I think, I don't know, I'd rather the coal. You know, you get to heat your home. With... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, some of you are like, this is a terrible statement. Why would he say that? I'm just kidding. I promise I'm just kidding. I hope I'm still married when the service is complete. Um, no, but you look at that, and we assign value to things, right? You know, if something reminds you of something important, we In our minds, we assign some value to it. And so what was that ring? Why does it matter? Well, it mattered to her and it mattered to him because it's a symbol of the covenant that they had made before the Lord, right? It's a symbol. It's a symbol of their, it was important. It was sentimental. Life would go on if they didn't find it, but they were grateful that it wasn't lost. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, what does He assure us of? Multiple times, we've seen it at least three times in the Gospel of John, including what we just read. He assures us that He will not lose us. He will not lose you. In fact, while praying in John chapter 17, is Christ's high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus said this. He said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So think about this. I have guarded them. Now this is being said initially in the context of that initial group of disciples. But what we discover is that Christ is doing the very same thing for you and for me. It's It's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. Christ is intentionally guarding you. He's guarding your life. He's protecting you from things. He's keeping you from things that would desire to harm you if they could. He's guarding you, and He tells us He will not lose us. He will not lose you. Now Jesus was about to demonstrate the truth of that prayer in that specific context. As the, as the, you know you have the disciples next to Him, near Him, and you have the soldiers prepared to arrest Him. He offers himself to them, and he instructs them to let his disciples go. You know, they didn't come with charges against the disciples, and Jesus wasn't putting up a fight, so the soldiers complied. They did what Jesus said. They let the disciples go, ultimately. They bound Jesus, but they don't arrest the others. Now again, this passage, it shows a momentary fulfillment of Jesus' promise not to lose his disciples, but again, that truth remains into the present. And that promise is amazing when we consider just how frequently we have taken our lives, so think about this from an individual, personal way, how frequently we've taken our lives in either unwise directions or unhealthy directions or even obstinate directions. You know, sometimes I've done things in my life that I would say, yeah, that was unwise. But other times I can look at my life and say, no, that was just obstinate. I was just being a pain, right? I was just being, like, just bold and just going in a direction that I should not have gone. And yet, just as Jesus promised, He didn't lose us. I'm sure many of us can share the joyful testimony of how Christ has assured our hearts of His unconditional love, even in seasons that were pretty close to us trying to run from Him, and yet you have Christ assuring us of of His unconditional love, and in His kindness, we're invited to repent we're invited to come back to him i think it's a beautiful sentiment to think about as we conclude our study of these i am statements that jesus made now again throughout the the gospel of john jesus made his identity very clear in these i am statements he said i am the bread of life he said i am the light of the world he said before abraham was born i am he said i am the door I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life. He went on to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. Then he said, I am the true vine, and here in this portion of Scripture that we have the privilege to read today, he says very simply, I am he, or really you could look at that and say, he just simply says, I am, I am. So again, having seen who Jesus is and what He promises to do for those who find rest for their souls through faith in Him, are our hearts willing to receive Him as Lord and rejoice in His continual presence in our lives? Do we fully appreciate who He is and what He's doing around us and within us? And here we're starting a new year. And this could be a new year that we experience with that understanding of who Christ is. What He wants to do in our lives. Let me just ask you to do something uh, brave and bold before we pause for prayer. And I'm just going to ask you to do this. Is there anyone that would want to receive Jesus Christ as Lord? today? If so, raise your hand. Praise God. Pray with me. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your love, for Your goodness, and for how wonderful You are to us. Lord, we know that when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, Lord, it's it's so easy for us to sometimes read these things maybe in a historical way and uh, read these things in just as an account of things that have happened and not think about these things in a personal way. But Lord, this morning we just come before you and we thank you for your love and Lord for our brother who just took a moment to acknowledge You and to raise His hand and to say, today's the day that He wants You, Lord. Lord, we join together with Him in prayer. We pray that He would understand who You are. We pray, Lord, that You'd give Him joy in Your presence. We pray, Lord, that You'd give Him Your strength. We pray, Lord, that You'd give him the confidence that only You can supply as You become his Lord, his Savior, cleansing him of sin. Lord, we pray for anyone here present with us who joins us in prayer, anyone that might even have the opportunity to hear a recording of our our study of Your Word today. Lord, we just pray that we would invite You into our lives, that we would trust in You completely, that we would seek Your forgiveness. And so Lord, we just join in prayer together right now, asking You to make us new in You, to grant us new life through You. We're grateful for the privilege that it is to be made new. Lord, thank You for a new year that You've blessed us with, and we're grateful that it's a year that we can spend rejoicing in Your presence, rejoicing in Your love, rejoicing in Your goodness to us. We pray that we would live with the confidence that you will never leave and you will never lose anyone who trusts in you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your love for us, for being the great I Am, and for demonstrating that to us in your Word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give our brother a hand. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Informal Bible Study. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, we'd invite you to stop by our website, which is desirejesus.com. And if you're not on our newsletter list, be sure to click the link to sign up right there on the front page of the website. But that's it for us today. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week, and we look forward to catching up with you again right here next Monday. Take care.